Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of our field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jamie Justice, Executive Director of XPRIZE HealthSpan, a $101 million international competition anticipated to launch in November 2023. In fact, if you're listening on the day that this podcast is published, November 29th, the official launch of XPRIZE HealthSpan was today. The prize will incentivize development and translation of therapeutics that target aging biology through one-year phase two clinical trials in older adults. Before joining XPRIZE Foundation as Vice President of the Health Domain, Jamie was assistant professor at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine, and she remains an adjunct member of the faculty there. Today, we're going to hear from Jamie about the prize, its purpose, and its motivation. And because so many listeners of this podcast are researchers of aging or involved in longevity biotech directly, we're going to discuss in detail how you can participate in the competition. Jamie, thanks for being here. Oh, Chris, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, for those who may not have heard the term, possibly because they were living under a rock for the last 20 years, <laughs> what is an X-Prize? Oh my gosh. Okay. So XPRIZE, it is a nonprofit foundation and the XPRIZE Foundation has been in the game since the mid nineties. They actually started with space exploration and have built on from there. So XPRIZE accelerates breakthroughs to solve humanity's greatest challenges. And they're a recognized leader in incentivized prize competitions. Right. So these are intended to spotlight difficult problems and set audacious but achievable goals. And it's really intended to attract the diverse community of innovators into this area or space that's been traditionally neglected or unaddressed by industry, governments, or nonprofits, or certainly in the case of aging, where current solutions really need to be accelerated. And so our XPRIZE competitors, they have to advance through rigorous testing. And this is one of the really big drivers of an XPRIZE is we are here to establish and actually set sort of validation standards and we have these judged by panels of globally recognized experts that actually step in and help us set up those criteria and actually conduct some of the testing or at least advise others on what that testing would be. And I think another key here is that unlike other areas, right, is that these have to be actionable. And so we're really encouraging teams and innovators to build a working solution. So it's not a paper exercise or another series of networks and meetings where people to get together and we talk about what's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, this is really, it's sort of a put your money where your mouth is. Everybody comes out, they get engaged and, you know, really turning hope into creative solutions. So XPRIZE has been around, as I mentioned, for quite a while. Health is a relatively newer area for XPRIZE Foundation. As mentioned, they started in science and they have a lot of other active prizes that are coming up and three more launching uh, this upcoming year. Some of the current competitions are to understand the rainforest ecosystem, remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and oceans at a gigaton scale, and also looking for ways to sustainably feed future generations by looking for alternative protein sources. So again, that just gives us a sense of the scale. And I think currently, or actually over its history, they have actually launched over $300 million worth of aggregate prize purses. 
and have drawn, you know, I think upwards of 10,000 teams of innovators, scientists, and entrepreneurs from over 140 countries. So again, XPRIZE has been in operation for quite a while. The scale of its endeavor is really pretty profound. And again, one of the things that it does, and in my mind, the least interesting thing it does is give away money. (laughs) I think the most interesting thing it does is really push the limits of what's possible and really drive home that mission that anyone anywhere can be part of this, you know, and trying to drive investment and attention into the areas that are most needed. Okay. Well, that's a really clear sense of what X prizes are in general. And one of the things that came through is that each individual X prize has to address a grand challenge, some big, maybe even planetary scale problem. So what's the grand challenge underlying X prize health span? Well, I know I'm, I'm really pandering to my own crowd here, but what bigger area is there than human health and aging? Indeed. I mean, really. <laughs> You know, if we just want to talk about in terms of impact of the number of people touched, aging is an opportunity, you know, that this is really incredible. We get to live in this planet. We get to experience many springs. And so the driving mission here is actually trying to improve not just the number of springs we get to see, but the quality of the life that we have within the years given. And that, you know, there's major area of need here and a lot of people working in the space, but really need a common goal and mission in order to drive innovation and accelerate the field. So uh, how much do you want to talk about aging, Chris? I want to talk about aging all the time, a lot. (laughs) All the time, all day. Let's go. You and I met at a pretty big conference called Aging Research and Drug Discovery, and the conference was full of people. It was. So there's, there's already people working on health span. There's already people working on aging and its translation. So one of the things I want to challenge you with is why is an XPRIZE necessary as a mechanism to advance solutions in this space? You're right. There are a lot of people working on and around this space. You know, I was, am one of them. I've brought into XPRIZE recently from an academic background. And in my academic background, my whole focus was really on building frameworks for translational trials and interventions testing. Earlier on, that was looking at things going from, you know, from cells to mouse to human clinical trials, uh, exactly this area of what can we do that have these broader systemic effects on aging to improve function. I then moved in and started doing this work in earlier proof of concept trials. You know, my interest here, some of my earliest works were actually with Jim Kirkland and doing work with Desatinum and Crescetin, testing senolytics in early stage trials and trying to build a network. So I was involved as a trainee and junior faculty member as on the Translational Geroscience Network. So again, a lot of people working in the space, but everybody sort of doing their own thing. And it's really hard to create change when there's all sort of this shifting sand of everyone has a different definition, a different data management system, a different platform, a different idea of what aging means, and therefore what needs to be proved in order to say that you've made an impact on aging or changed aging in some way with a therapeutic or intervention. While all of that work was happening, I also had the really great fortune very early in my career to start working first as a postdoc. I was sort of the minion grunt labor. (laughs) And then that evolved into an executive committee position with the TAME trial targeting aging with metformin. It was really designed to create a regulatory pathway for aging as a target for drug development. 
And, you know, I, I love the TAME trial. I learned so much on working in it. But one of the biggest things I learned is how huge those barriers to progress are. As you know, it's, it's been, gosh, eight, almost 10 years since we started work on that trial. And it's still not in the field. And so there is just an enormous need, whether we're talking about these early stage clinical trials or these later stage trials that are really designed to create the pathway that we need in order to make movement on aging really uh, in a proactive way. And so I know intimately the barriers in trying to do this, how many people are in the space, what the issues are in trying to define and measure aging, and also what the issues are in order to try to get the public on board try to get our stakeholders aligned, actually build the groundswell of support that's really needed so that we can create a regulatory change and create a framework and a burden of proof for what we call and how we measure aging as it relates to therapeutics development. And so again, tons of activity, tons of work in the space. But you know, unless we all start to come together and actually start to coordinate that, building a global collaborative network, I think we're unlikely to make changes in this way, doing it one trial or one study at a time. Okay. So I'm, I'm very convinced by your explanation of why this problem is not going to solve itself. <laughs> it sounds like you're calling for greater coordination and even greater standardization of definition. Absolutely. Not necessarily of approach, but of creating a way to compare and combine progress in the field. So in light of that perspective, how is XPRIZE uniquely positioned to advance here to solve this problem? I love this question. Okay, so I am in the most fortunate and exciting place is I don't have a dog in this fight. <laughs> I really love it. You know, I enjoy studying aging. I love being at the forefront and watching therapeutics develop. You know, I like setting up the game and the system and watching people really do this sort of head-to-head, -head, really come together, watch them come together, build ideas from various different sectors, try to merge them together into a coherent story. And so, I mean, XPRIZE has this opportunity. We're a nonprofit. We don't make money on people's solutions. You know, we offer this as an opportunity to get people together and create major changes but I don't have to have an interest in any one of these therapeutics or what gets developed. I get to watch sort of the beauty of it all, the craziness of it all, watching it all come together and have these different ideas coalesce and bring together. Again, without necessarily needing to strongly endorse or support a single therapeutic approach, mechanism, or disease. Because, you know, I think it's pretty easy as a scientist to, uh, you know, you can fall in love with your pet disease, your pet mechanism, your pet therapeutic. But I think what we really need is a process to stand back from that and actually think about the goal, the larger mission and what we're working on. And in that case, you know, aging is about as big and as broad as it can possibly get. I want to draw out something that I was thinking about during your answer, which is you're arguing that the strength of XPRIZE in this capacity is that XPRIZE is disinterested. It, it's agnostic as to the nature of the final solution. It just wants to help move the entire field or the entire world in the direction of a solution. However, the competitors, we're going to talk more about what that means to be a competitor later in the conversation, they themselves will be motivated in part by individual interest, companies who own IP, sure, scientists who want to get grants and publish papers. But what I hear you saying is that by standing outside of those 
individualistic considerations, XPRIZE has the ability and the potential to catalyze coherent progress in one direction. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And, you know, and that we can do this because we don't have a strong interest in any one way. We really allow our teams to come together, bring any idea. You know, I constantly say this, and a great idea can come from anywhere, can come from anyone. You know, and that I think it can be really hard, certainly without sort of a guiding direction is, you know, people compete or they get secretive or, you know, start thinking about this or you have to have your own little way to do it. And that's great. I think that there can be a lot of innovation that comes from that space. But I think we can really drive greater innovation and greater progress. Again, it is still a competition. It's the spirit of competition. It draws people out. It brings them together in a way that I think just sort of like having a a request for applications from a granting mechanism doesn't necessarily do. It's It inspires action. I'm convinced by your statement of the problem, again, of your explanation of why the problem won't solve itself. And I agree that this is, this is inspiring. What I don't yet understand and what I'd like to walk through with our listeners is how this is going to work. So, you know, you launched, I'm going to pretend that it's today, November 29th. So a little bit of history, like what did you need to accomplish to make that happen? Like what's been done up to this point? And perhaps along the way to your answer, you could introduce us to the Endpoints Committee and Advisory Board. Give us a little bit of information about the structure of the effort and and what you've done up to this point. Every prize, every project, every study, every trial, they have a life and they have sort of their own story. I mean, it is, it's like, a it's not a fairy tale story in that way, but in this case, I would say probably close to it. Peter became interested in aging probably 10 or 15 years ago. I think of the groundswell of scientific discovery that most of us, at least, you know, I consider myself, I'm the first in a generation of geroscientists that I was trained that this is not only possible, but achievable. And a lot of us around that time period, the geroscience papers were coming out. We had a new field emerge. We talked about the hallmarks. We talked about the pillars. And we really began looking at this as an approachable problem that could be malleable and treated with therapeutics. Peter was really captivated by that, but at that time thought that a solution that could be done in humans was way too far away to even consider. Fast forward another 10 years, he starts revisiting that conversation with some of the folks within his, we call him friends of Peter, the Peterverse, (laughs) that he has a lot of folks that he's really closely connected to. And so they started this conversation over again. And he was really easily convinced by folks in the field, including the likes of uh, David Sinclair, George Church, and others to say, you know, actually, the time might be right. There may be therapeutics now that might be getting ready to go towards trial. Um, Maybe they're not there yet, but it's probably the time to actually get people together so that we can decide on what an endpoint is, what it looks like, how you measure it. And so this was the original process. So they started at least ballparking what that looked like. It became more tangible when they had the first donor. The very first was uh, someone named Sergey Young, that he contributed enough for XPRIZE to start designing a prize concept around what this could and would look like. And so that was a few years ago. Once they had that prize concept funded and at least the initial formation of it, it was pretty loose, pretty broad. They took that out and got input from other scientific advisors. They also took it out to get funding, is that this is kind of a strange prize. It's a large purse. It's a lot of work. But it has over 19 different individual sponsors and donors. 
And so it's kind of crowdsourced in that way. And so they took this idea out and they started getting ideas. They started pulling it together. Once they raised sort of the minimum funds needed to support it, around $100 million, $101, $120 million in that range, then they started their international search for a director of somebody on the science side who could lead it. And I was very fortunate to have gotten that call and accepted. can talk about that later. But once I came on board, I just started this summer. We had a whole lot of work to do in very little time. My experience working with both the Translational Geroscience Network, uh, the Geroscience Network before it, and on the TAME trial, I at least knew and was foolish enough to accept the opportunity to try that kind of endeavor again. (laughs) 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 I'm forever an optimist. (laughs) You know, so then we started the, the work all over again as saying, okay, well, here's what they did the fundraising around. Here's the original prize pitch and idea. Now, how do we take this and actually make it measurable but audacious? And so we went back out and with the help and advice of um, some of our sponsors and existing members, we identified a very short, very concise group to form what was called our Endpoints Committee. And so this group included uh, Dr. Patrick Maxwell, who was my co-chair of that committee. Patrick Maxwell was great because he's an aging outsider. He said, I think it's really tempting in this space is we can form an echo chamber where aging scientists only talk to other aging scientists. And we forget that the rest of the medical community is going to have to take this up. (laughs) And so it was really important for us to get a complete outsider as a reality check. And so Patrick was my co-chair and he's the head of clinical medicine at University of Cambridge and an extremely, extremely accomplished physician and scientist. And so we were really excited to have him on board. We were joined by others within the aging space. One of our main uh, huge contributor to this has been uh, Dr. Luigi Ferrucci, the scientific director at the National Institute on Aging. He served as an advisor and it's just been really critical in connecting us with some of the data that we need to model our endpoints. And we were also informed by Dr. Tom Rando, who again is a luminary in the field both for you know developing therapeutics and thinking about testing, both especially on that early translation side, which is really what this prize is designed to incentivize. And we are also accompanied by our, we call him our resident biologist, uh, Steve Ostad. Uh, I love Steve. So Dr. Steve Ostad, uh, just love Steve. So yeah, personal anecdote, Steve is one of my favorite humans. And when I teach courses on biology of aging, I often refer to Steve as the Dos Equis man of our field. <laughs> he is the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> you know, <laughs> is that it's not often that you sit in a casual conversation and has him like, oh, it reminds me of this time I was paddling down the Nile. Right. Or, oh gosh, I remember when I was being chased by hippos. I was terrifying. <laughs> yeah, field biologists have all the fun. They really do. They really do. <laughs> and so again, he's seen a lot of movement in the space. He was actually there at the initial meetings with the FDA on the TAME trial. And in his role, both as a scientist and with the American Federation for Aging Research as, an, uh, as a scientific director, you know, he was really critical for us to begin ballparking this, what's meaningful, what speaks to the biology, is that I think that's also happened in the field as we get a lot of clinical trialists and also, you know, clinicians in the room. 
and can often neglect the biology. So we wanted to make sure that this mission was really carried through from the biology into early stage testing. So that is my my immediate team. And so we've worked on this as an endpoints for the last uh, couple of months. And we're just now onboarding a larger scientific advisory board. Again, we started with a very small fleet team so that we could make decisions really quickly is that we had very little time from the time that I was onboarded until our launch, which just happened on November 29th. And so we had to move quickly. And then we also engaged a larger board. That larger board includes, again, great scientists within the field, some that I've worked with for a long time, like Nir Barsalai and George Kuchel, and then others who have been really active in the biomarker world, right? So this is like Morgan Levine, Dan Belsky, among others. And again, we have additional persons who are on board that have great done a lot of work within the Longevity Consortium, which is about a 30-year long running. It's got, ugh, the Longevity Consortium has a long longevity. <laughs> so it's been in the field in practice for about 30 years. And you know, so in addition to doing work in biomarkers, the principal investigator for that group, uh, Nick Shork, has a really great history in doing and advancing alternative trial designs. And so as we're talking about aging and how we test it, we also have to talk about how we're designing trials in order to do that. And so this is a great opportunity to sort of broaden away from just the double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized, controlled trials. We can start talking about what other strategies are out there, what other considerations should we have, what tools can people use. And then again, we're also accompanied by folks within data coordinating centers that I've worked with in the past. This includes Steve Cummings and Peggy Cawthon, who are just experts in function and mobility and biomarker validation. And they also have operated a clinical trials coordinating center for over 40 years and certainly have the experience that we need in thinking about a global network like this. And what our data needs will be and how to coordinate this so that we can actually validate findings to crown a winner. Okay. So you have the expertise, you have the infrastructure, for lack of a better word, you have a sense of the principles that are going to be applied. But now that you've launched, what happens next? How is the competition organized? This is the most delightful part. So it gets to be beautifully, beautifully messy at the very beginning. And I say that because I think that's really what makes the prize different from a trial. It's been really actually hard for me to reverse my thinking on this, is that in a trial, I'm used to controlling everything. This is a prize. And so actually, now that we've launched, what we've really launched initially is a first six-month public commentary period. And so during this first six months, you guys now have in front of you our competition guidelines. It's a real skeleton with a lot of suggestions and example measures, and this is what we recommend you do. And it's written loose for a reason, is that, yes, we have awarding criteria. Yes, we have a winning team statement of what our folks need to demonstrate by the end of this competition to win. But we've left some of the details and how we're getting there up to our teams to help us develop and comment on is that this is what makes a prize different than a trial, is that it's radically collaborative, is that we actually want our teams to come back to this competition and say, yes, I agree, no, I don't, and that they'll help us refine the frameworks and some of the specifics and how and what we're measuring 
in a way that's actually more meaningful for the field than if we had just prescribed what they must do. And this was, again, a major point of decision for our endpoints committee and also in discussions with our sponsors, is that I think that we would really be wasting an opportunity if we didn't open up for public. But that said, the frameworks are there. You can see really clearly what we're proposing to do and what we're asking our teams to do. You know, that for us, the winning team will statement, right, is that our winning team will demonstrate that their therapeutic treatment will restore muscle, cognitive, and immune function, all three, by a minimum of 10 years and up to 20 years. And that these have to be done in trials that are conducted in persons who are age 65 to 80, who are free of major life-threatening disease or illness or disability. And they have to demonstrate that their therapeutic works in a period of one year or less, meaning that they bring in their subjects, they start them on whatever that therapeutic is. We don't tell them what it is. And they tell us, you know, what what their therapeutic is. They do their testing one year later at the follow-up. And we'll be looking at the change in function in those three areas, accompanied by safety data, accompanied by information on accessibility and scalability, and it's supported by biomarkers. But they have to show that that change in one year is enough in magnitude, that improvement in magnitude offsets the age-related declines in those functional domains expected over 10 years, 15 years, or 20 years. I see. So this is not a situation where you're using some kind of a clock to measure notional biological age. Instead, it's something more like a person of 75 has the following risk of developing these kinds of muscle atrophy or immune dysfunction or cognitive impairment. And those can be measured in some way that we believe in and is relatively standardized. And we're asking for a therapy that is able to, in the course of a year, bring a 75-year-old's risk profile down to the level of a 65-year-old's risk profile. Am I understanding that correctly? Easy peasy, right? Could do this on your on your lunch break. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think that the reason why I wanted to drill down on that is because there's, yeah. suffice to say, the idea of clocks and measuring a notional biological age is, is controversial. And I, I mean, yes, it is. the work is ongoing to be charitable. And I think we don't necessarily know that things that change these biological age metrics have other kinds of interventional value for health. So I wanted to clarify both for myself and to test my own understanding. And for our listeners, you're thinking more in terms of what a clinician scientist might call, you know, a rigorous assessment of what the physiological age of a person is. Yeah, that's right. And so again, we went into this not uninformed, you know, that this, and part of this comes from trials testing, right? Is that, you know, the FDA they have set out, you know, a burden of proof, any intervention, any therapeutic anywhere, whether you're talking about diet, whether you're talking about exercise, whether you're talking about, you know, a new drug, a repurposed drug, a gene therapy, doesn't matter what, you know, they put the burden of proof back on the investigator and the burden of proof, because any one of those interventions, right, they carry a risk. Mm-hmm. And so when we're thinking about the burden of proof is that the protection is really there is that for this to be indicated for use in somebody or uptake, whatever it is, is that you have to demonstrate that the benefit of taking or doing said therapeutic outweighs the risk. And in terms of the FDA framework for what that burden of proof looks like for benefit, means you have to show, you have to change the way they function, feel, or survive. 
And so that pervades actually a really nice framework. Again, you know, we're not necessarily saying that we're going to change the FDA with these small sort of phase two trials. That's not the goal. But that still provides the framework necessary for us to talk about what's actually meaningful to someone. And so survival's out the window. We're not going to do that in a one-year trial. Just scrape it away. It's going to take way too long. Not the right trials, not the right design. So that leaves us with functions and feels. We can do functions and feels in one year. That gives us the right kind of proof of concept that we're going down the road, that we're going to meet that burden of proof that the benefit of this therapeutic will outweigh the risk of taking it. And so those are things that can be measurable and they're things that are meaningful to people. You know, so when we talk to adults and we think about, you know, what the most important things are, it's I want to get out of the house. I want to play with my grandkids. I'd love to be able to remember my grocery list when I'm in the store and have all these competing cognitive activities going on around me, maybe even watching said grandkid while trying to shop in the store and walking down aisles. You know, so these are complex executive tasks. And then we just went through a pandemic. And I think we all have a much better understanding of the importance of our immune system and immune function. And that, you know, some of the things we can do to boost that immune function are to actually treat the various infectious diseases. But I think we all learned a lesson from the pandemic that much greater is to do what we think of as host-directed therapies. What can we do to actually improve the person and their immune resilience so that they're not as susceptible to the negative consequences of infectious diseases now or in the future? And so, again, these are the things that get people active, out of the house, engaged, productive. And that framework is really what we need to overcome the major burdens that come with having a beautiful aging society, right? Is that there's a massive economic cost. And one of this really, the the driving factor for that economic cost is really largely due to a loss of labor supply. And so these are the things that keep people engaged. They're meaningful to the individual. The economic return is really great. It gets us outside, completely outside of a disease framework so that our people are very clear that we're talking about aging, not disease. And I don't want to get into that can of worms, Chris. Don't even ask me. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, but these are very clear, meaningful endpoints. But we'll also be collecting data on, uh, we'll be collecting biospecimens. We will be looking for biomarkers. We're hoping to link this up with another biomarker competition that's set to launch, not from XPRIZE, but from external groups, and watching the biomarker space very carefully. And in each year of the first three years of this award, we're going to have team summits and biomarker summits. And we actively encourage folks that are working on biomarkers, bring them forward. We're not putting them in as awarding criteria, but they're supportive and judge criteria's And once we get all of these trials in the field, it's going to be one of the best biomarker validation studies ever done. You'll have up to 10 teams in our finals. They're going to be out there. They're going to be testing various therapeutics, all different kinds. We're going to have the same judge criteria based on function at baseline and at one year. So this is going to be a really rich data set that people can actually look at their pet biomarker use the biologic specimens and some of the data that we'll be providing back to them, and use this to validate and develop. Find either personalized signatures about responders and non-responders. Actually look at your biomarker or your clock or whatever it may be 
not with one therapeutic, but across at least 10. And you'll have them in a way that actually is measuring function that's meaningful to people and meaningful to the FDA. And so, I mean, this is really, this is a scaffolding for discovery and scientific development. I mean, this alone made me make the jump from the lab to XPRIZE Foundation. Just the opportunity to do this at scale is just remarkable. I agree that it sounds fascinating. I I have a couple of questions about the trials themselves. And I'm going to warn you, spoiler alert, I'm going to move in a somewhat skeptical direction here because I think there's a question in my mind that's going to be present in the minds of our listeners. So the the setup (laughs) question to my skeptical zinger that's coming up is the trials that you're talking about. Now, do these have to be trials that are specifically designed and conducted for the XPRIZE competition? Or can a trial that's being performed for another reason, say in the course of clinical development by a biotech company, be adapted or retrofitted to make it eligible slash appropriate for XPRIZE competition? This is exactly the sweet spot, is that we are proposing prospective measurements. We are going to have, you know, any data that's used for judging has to go into a common data management, a collection site that will collate. But the trials can be ongoing for other purposes. We're setting our our population data, that inclusion, exclusion, or eligibility, fairly loose. And we're providing those as suggestions for our teams about what we would recommend that they do. But it leaves just enough space so that if you have a company, a team, or even an academic or a nonprofit group that is running a prevention trial, these could easily be added as measures to an existing trial. And so, you know, we have talked to groups that are actively working in this space. And I think that there's a really great opportunity. You know, the caveat there, of course, is it is probably better as an add-on for a prevention trial. So if you have somebody who, I'm just going to give an example, might be working on something for Alzheimer's disease prevention, they enroll a lot of people who might have mild cognitive impairment, but not overt Alzheimer's disease or dementia. They have this trial starting or ongoing, and they say, okay, maybe can we add these measures to a subset of our of our patient population? Those who are, you know, kind of within that sweet spot range, we'll add these measures. We can sign up as, as a competitor. And just as long as they're using our measures that will give a common protocol, we'll be doing training on how to do the assessments and that they are entering data prospectively, absolutely, can absolutely be a sidearm or a subset of an existing trial. You know, the caveat being that wouldn't work very well for, say, somebody who is doing like cancer treatment. Prevention, sure. Treatment, hard. So those are some of the caveats, just because we do have that disclaimer, right, that these are in person 65 to 80, who, again, they can have well-controlled disease, they can have functional, some minor functional impairment or slight deficit. In fact, we recommend that so that you can see improvement over a year. But, you know, but we leave a lot of flexibility otherwise. Uh, but they have to be free of life-threatening diseases and disability. I see. All right. Here's the skeptical question. And I, and I have a second skeptical question based on what you just said. But the first one is, there's a big purse attached to winning the prize. Yes. But as I have learned in the past three years of working for a biotech company, in order to run trials of any kind, preventive or disease curing, an entity needs money now, not in the future. And they need it to be definitely having the money and not maybe having the money. Like you can't borrow against the prospect of a future award. (laughs) So a skeptic, in this case, me, 
might say that in order to get these trials set up, that despite XPRIZE's desire to foment progress and catalyze and encourage progress in this field, that any entity that's competing still needs to go through all the fundraising effort that a modern day, large scale academic trial or longevity biotech company needs to go through anyway. So like in what sense is XPRIZE making it easier for those trials to happen? That is not a controversial issue at all. That's actually part of why XPRIZE is XPRIZE, is that the purse is enough to get people out of their seats and grab attention. It's also enough to actually get investors looking at this space. This is a very, very big reason. So in every prize that XPRIZE has run is that most of those teams invest more than the purse that they receive on the end. And so how XPRIZE is a little bit different is that we do go out of our way to actually try to drive investment in this space up front so that our competing teams, again, if they're from commercial or for-profit, maybe it's a biotech, a startup, something else, is that there are a lot of investors who are going to be watching these prizes very carefully and looking for opportunities to support or invest teams that come in. And that this is an opportunity to run this transparently, make connections, build that network. That's part of that network. I'm an academic. And so I came from the world of getting no money, <laughs> given current NIH standards. But there are federal and philanthropic sources as well. And so I have been on a mission lately is to really work with program officers from various, whether it's federal or nonprofit or philanthropic orgs and foundations is to let them know about this prize, let them know about the competitors and where we see the overlap, ensure that they know that they're likely to receive applications from teams who are interested in competing, and ensuring that there are opportunities for funding and requests for applications that are aligned with the goals of the prize. And really inviting this to be a space that, you know, one of the reasons we do this, again, is to drive investment in the area. And so there is, they've looked at some of these about how much for every dollar of prize money that's leveraged about the impact that they get out of that. And so, you know, most teams will invest more than the prize, but they use that to leverage. You get a 19 times return on the investment for into teams post-competition often a seven times return on the testing and verification of the prize's cutting-edge solution, more than double leveraging the global awareness to the issue, and about three times the return on R&D and additional innovation. And that's in terms of patents and publications. And so those are leverage points that go far beyond what the prize is. And again, how this translates to this HealthSpan prize, those are all from you know a lot of our engineering prizes, everything from space, conservation, climate, carbon removal. And so those are demonstrated numbers from XPRIZE. And we'll be following this really, really closely is that, yeah, we want to drive innovation. We also want to drive investment. And we want to create an atmosphere and an area for for people to connect to the resources that they need in order to get this done, because we think that's actually how we're going to make the movement happen. I guess I'm still kind of wanting to know more about the structure of the competition. And I understand there's going to be stages like semifinals and finals, but will there be regular check-ins along the way? And Oh, yes. Okay. I get excited about this. I mean, this is really, I, I know it sounds really silly, <laughs> um, but I actually like people and I love seeing people to come together. I mean, this is like, it's, it's a, 
grand competition, a grand game. And we can only do this if we actually get people speaking the same language, doing the same things, communicating, building a network. And we do that by getting people together. So yes, there's going to be a lot of activity. There are two milestone awards in advance of that large prize. And each year, there's going to be at least one team and biomarker summit that brings people together. Um, So our teams get together and they get to see or talk about which other ones are working on. You know, they can talk about progress, things that are going well, things that are going bad. We use this as an opportunity to showcase certain teams that we think are making really great progress in the area. At most of these events, there will also be investors and angel donors and also program officers for those on the academic side. We're working really hard to make sure that community is built in support of this as well. Those biobarker summits, you know, that we know that those measurements are needed. And so we'll also be hosting those to actually, again, it's not just for therapeutics. Studying aging requires a large ecosystem of scientists and investigators. And so biomarker development is huge. And it'll be really important to develop that as these R&D through early stage trials progress. And so the first part of this competition starts with an intent to compete. And so here people put in their team name, their ideas, what their therapeutic solution is, or if they have a screening approach that they maybe they're like, well, I've got these four things and I'm not sure I want to figure out which combination because we are allowing combinations. And so they can have this screening approach to determine how they're going to figure out their winner, at least for their own process. And so they'll come out with whatever their solution is. So we have this qualifying submission phase and intent to compete. We start public meetings, public comment period, town halls to talk with our teams that are coming in about what we should measure and how. And they'll have a chance to react to our guidelines. Then in 2024 and uh, July, we're going to have a, we're going to close that period. We'll actually publish a common guideline set and rules and regulations. And we'll have some competitor agreements that go out. With those competitor agreements, our teams have to submit their qualifying submission. And so that's where they actually have to not just tell us what they think they're working on, but actually how they're going to get there and what they've done. So this includes a lot of the R&D phase work, right? So what have you tested? How, how have you screened in organoids? If you're doing that, you know, what animal models, you know, have you tested in vivo? Do, have you had, you know, at least two mammalian species, one non-rodent? Have you done any testing in humans of what kind? This could also be for groups working in diseased populations. Are you ready to translate that over? And give us some indication that you at least have your regulatory paperwork prepared and ready so that you will go into trials within 2025 to 2026. And so that qualifying submission will take $10 million of that 101 and will award that to 40 teams. Not that 40 teams each get $10 million because that's a lot of money. It's also more than 101 million. <laughs> more than we could do. Exactly. So thanks for following along. That's right. But it's $250,000 per team. Again, that's not enough to run an early stage trial or even that earliest proof of concept phase. But it is like a thank you for playing keep going. Um, But again, during that periods, those first teams that really get the 40 is that, again, there's going to be a lot of people out there looking for for teams to invest in, companies that are coming up, places to donate. Benefactors will be interested. And it also gives people time to prepare their grant submissions if they're going for federal or philanthropic funds. So that next stage, we go from qualifying submissions. We have the 40 teams that are awarded 
more teams can continue to participate if they choose. That next stage is really about proof of concept. So this gives our teams that are doing novel therapeutics or first-in-humans trials a chance to do things like target engagement, maybe run a 30-day proof of concept trial, have some signal of improvement in terms of a biomarker, at least suggestion of safety and feasibility of approach. And so then we'll use that determination. We'll have another judging panel come together, look at those for go-no-go signals, If we have a team that's already in a large trial, like we talked about before, and they're adding this as an add-on, you know, we'll at least look and make sure that that structure works. So we'll have a go-no-go signal decision point for that one, that hurdle. And we're going to select 10 finalist teams. Those 10 finalist teams have to show us at least, you know, they have proved at that point that they're ready to run one-year trials, that they can do this, they can recruit subjects, they can do the work and that they're willing to use our common data management system and our clinical protocols for doing the functional measures. Those teams, those 10 teams, again, we have another $10 million distribution, $1 million per team. Once again, that's definitely not enough on its own to run a one-year trial, even a small-scale trial, which these, again, these are not huge trials. We're looking at like 40 people, and we're setting an upper cap of what we can afford to measure for biomarkers and whatnot at about 200. We're also setting that because we think recruitment more than that would be really hard to do within the time period requested. Having run trials, recruitment's always slow. (laughs) It's always slower than you want it to be. Oh, yes. And it just takes time. Oh, yes. You know, so we're providing at least, again, frameworks and sort of like um, bumpers on both sides, but it's going to be up to our team to bring us their power calculations and sample size estimates. And that'll go into some of those finals validations that go forward to select our finalists. So again, that's a general framework. So we have, you know, $20 million goes out in milestone awards. People really need to be in their one-year trials or getting ready for that by 2026. We also provided that, that buffer of two years to allow academic teams to raise funds either through grant purposes, those take forever, or for our commercial and biotech teams to gather interest and support and investment in order to run the trials as well. So again, that's one of our goals. We give a little buffer in time, so it's not like you have to have that ready now (laughs) that we've launched, but we give a little buffer and that we try to give as much support and access to investors as we can. Okay. And at the end of the entire process, the teams, these 10 finalists, are evaluated on the question of whether they've met the criteria that you described earlier, that their intervention can knock 10 years off the risk profile in muscle, cognitive, and immune aging over the course of one year. That's right. Okay. And what if there's more than one intervention that does that? I would be damned impressed. (laughs) Would they split the purse at that point? We're going to award the best of. We'll be awarding the best of. Oh, I see. So if my intervention gives 11 years and yours gives 10 and a half, then I win. That's right. Okay, fantastic. Okay, well, and the, and the, this is all going to unfold over the course of the next seven years-ish, ending in 2030, is that the idea? That's right. We're going to crown a champ at the end of 2030, is that that's going to be, you know, teams will have basically until, the, uh, until 2029, they should start their trial closeouts. And so we'll have all of this within our rules and regulations about what those time points are. And then we'll need at least six months to get the biomarkers analyzed and done, the data cleaned and prepared for judges. And then the judges will make that determination and the final awarding goes out. 
Well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be an exciting six and a half years. No kidding. I'm so excited. Are you guys going to join us? Well, I mean, I, I, I think that we'd like to. I just want you to know that this is binding. <laughs> One of the things you said is that, you know, the trials have to be for people who are healthy and not burdened with a disease. And I think that one of the things that's true of clinical development and longevity biotech is there's this, this idea that, you know, we can't do clinical development for aging per se. So instead we do target discovery through the lens of aging. And then we need to decide what disease to run our clinical trial on. So the mainline clinical trials that a company like BioAge is running, there's a disease indication. And the people who are in the trials by definition have that disease. Making those trials, which are the subject of huge amounts of effort and vast amounts of money, ineligible, according to my understanding of what you said, for XPRIZE competition. But the clinical assets in question might be very appropriate for prevented trials that are designed probably independently because they'd be, they'd be different study populations. But I think that certainly we're huge intellectual supporters. We're huge moral supporters of what you're doing. And I think that if the, if the stars were aligned and you know, the money and staffing and resources were present in a way that didn't detract from our mainline clinical development, I think that we'd be very excited to compete and also to encourage others to participate. I mean, the second part is easier because encouraging others to participate, even if they're from outside what's currently considered longevity biotech, uh, our perspective would be more is better for the field and for the planet. And, and, and some people might skeptically say, hey, BioAge, why would you want competition? I've said on this show before, and I'll say again here, that the field is too new and too wide open to think in terms of competition as a zero-sum game. You know, we're very collegial within the field, and there's this nearly universal belief that a success for one is, is really a success for all. So, of course, we want to contribute to a situation in which more entities were participating. We'd love it for us to be us. You know, as I said, if, if the stars are aligned, Lord willing and the creek don't rise. I think <laughs> BioAge would love to would love to to join as a team. Right. That's obviously a decision for the grown-ups. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and so, you know, so two points to that really quickly. So it's not that we're saying no diseases. We're saying no life-threatening. Okay. And so there is a distinction there. And we'll try to provide a window for recruitment. I see. You know, so again, we're trying to make this as open and flexible to teams as possible, but creating a playing field yeah so to, to make that a little bit more specific you mean like like obesity okay but stage four pancreatic cancer not okay amen yes that's we're there yes okay okay all right all right so there are indications that are not acutely life-threatening yes that yeah okay i'm really glad that we reached this point of clarification because i had sort of misunderstood what you'd said and this actually does paint a much broader picture of what's what's eligible right yeah so we're talking no life-threatening and no disability so again, so, you know, some of the cases, I think one of the classic examples is like Alzheimer's and dementia. You can have every risk factor. You can have mild cognitive impairment. You can sort of be going down that slippery slope. But as long as it's not overt sort of late stage, yeah, I mean, that would be, I would say, um, too difficult to show improvement in one year unless you had a miracle drug, in which case, my God, please compete. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but, you know, we're trying to make this as friendly as we can to the teams that are competing. And so I think that's a as a as a really critical piece there. And you know, yeah, there's an opportunity. And during that public comment period, these are exactly the conversations that we want to have during town hall meetings. Is to what extent and how do we define? Okay. So 
Yeah, it's active. It's open. And so this is, uh, as long as we can talk about it openly, we're, we're happy to kind of, again, make that determination as a family. We're going to get through this as a family, Chris. <laughs> well, in that case, to answer a question you didn't actually ask, unquestionably, we are excited to be part of that conversation. And I hope that our, <laughs> and I hope that our colleague companies are as well. Oh, I'm so glad. Unfortunately, we're reaching the end of like a reasonable podcast length. And although I think you and I could just sit here on microphone and like chew the fat for another two hours, I feel like we need to close up. And I guess I just wanted to open the floor to you and ask, what did I miss? Is there anything you want to tell our listeners in parting? Yeah, I think what you missed is inviting me back so we can just talk science. <laughs> That's, I'm just going to throw that out there, just like an unsolicited, like, please call me back. Done. So because, again, I talked a lot about the prize and talked about this and that, but it's like there are so many questions and areas that I actually want to talk to you about and to the BioH listeners, as you know, that there is this is a huge area. I want to talk about the science. I want to dig in about what some of the gaps and barriers are, not just that I see in developing the prize, but about the field. And then also would love some time to talk about democratizing science and, you know, the conversations we have and and what our roles are. So that would be, I'm, I'm begging you to invite me back so we can have more conversations. That sounds wonderful. Let's, let's plan to do something next year where it's like 5% a retrospective on the first year of the X Prize and 95% the topics you just described. Okay, great. And then I know, so let's do that. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that we've missed. I think the biggest part is everybody out there, please join us. We've launched. I want you to go to xprize.org. We have a link to our intent to compete on that webpage. You can fill out your intent to compete now. It gets you part of our global conversation. Even if you're just like, maybe I have an idea that I'm not sure if it's going to pull off, try it. At the very least, you can be part of this. We can link you up as part of our global network and our alumni teams to others who may have the resources or ideas or the complement of skills that you're looking for. And it gives you a seat at the table to come play with us. Because again, this is meant to be wildly, radically collaborative. And it won't be that if we don't have more people part of the process with us. So those are my Biggest encouragement, intent to compete, xprize.org. It's active and live now. You can also download our initial competition guidelines. And I'm here for you anytime. You can email, comment, call. And again, I'm here whether you have praise or have some arrows to sling. I'm open (laughs) for it all. Fantastic. Dr. Jamie Justice, Executive Director of XPRIZE HealthSpan. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Uh, Chris, it's my greatest pleasure. Uh, love BioAge and everything that you guys are doing. I'm a huge, huge fan, and it is a honor to be part of this podcast. Thank you again, and many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at BioAge Podcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.